and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. In recent months, there's been a growing feeling that Britain as a nation is in decline. Our public services are struggling. We've had four prime ministers in five years. Even the death of the Queen has felt like the end of something more. People like me could say, and we do say, I told you so, this was what was always going to happen after Brexit. But that wouldn't move us forward. Where is Britain going? Where does it want to go? And how could we adjust to the way we live now? With me to talk over those big questions is political thinker Mark Steers. He's director of the University College London Policy Lab. He was Ed Miliband's chief speechwriter and was a leading figure in what was called the Blue Labour Movement. He even taught Liz Truss at Oxford. We can talk about that a bit more later. Welcome to the bunker, Mark. Great to be here. I want to kick off by listening to something Jeremy Hunt said in his autumn statement this week, courtesy of Parliament TV. The NHS budget has been increased to record levels to deal with the pandemic. And today I'm asking the NHS to join all public services in tackling waste and inefficiency. We want Scandinavian quality alongside Singaporean efficiency, both better outcomes for citizens and better value for taxpayers. I thought that was one of the more surprising parts of this autumn statement. It seemed like a throwback to a world that no longer exists and an aspiration that no longer exists. What did you think of the autumn statement? It was an extraordinary event, really, really, isn't it? I mean, only a few weeks ago, we had the Conservative backbenches roaring with approval with Kwesi Kwarteng uh, and, you know, sort of huge tax cuts, uh, especially at the top end of the income spectrum, uh, all to be funded by borrowing and then a a dash for growth, which was hopefully going to turn everything around. And now we've got a completely different um, both rhetoric and reality, you know, sort of got Jeremy Hunt with a very austere rhetoric, you know, you sort of can't borrow your way to growth, he shouted across the chamber at one point. Uh, but with a you know, reality which is a little bit more complex than that, which is really, you know, large tax rises um, for many people. And to be fair, especially at the top end of the income spectrum, just to try and stabilise the ship until we get to the general election. British politics is like nothing else seen anywhere in the world right now. It is very hard to get your head around, as you say, that we've gone from the boosterism of Johnson and then the low-tax nirvana of Liz Truss to to this in less than a year. Do you think people are struggling to understand the scale of austerity too and the mixed messages they keep getting from the government? It's twofold. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, people's feeling about the economy has got nothing to do with what goes on in the House of Commons or what appears on the front pages of the newspapers. You know, people know how hard life is right now because of what it feels like to you know be doing the weekly shop or facing the weekend and thinking about whether you can have some fun with the family and realising that the money's just not there for it. The reality of the economy is an extraordinary living standard squeeze which people confront in their daily lives. And then there's the sort of background noise, which is the madness of politics, which, as you say, is swung from one extreme to the other, you know, and then swung back again. If I'm honest, I think most people probably just um, you know, do what they can to close their ears to it all, knowing that you know, what will be will be for them. When you put your political head back on, that's a real trouble for the government in, in a way that pe- people aren't really uh, listening to what they're saying because they know uh, the reality of their lives. You're a public policy thinker. I mean, do you think the Conservatives are open to public policy at the moment? Uh, were there traces of thinking, that kind of thinking that we could see in Hunt's statement? Or are they simply in survival mode right now? I mean, it's a bit of both, if, if I'm honest. So what's most striking, I think, is that the Conservative, if Conservative backbenchers 
know that they're in a real electoral pickle right now. For, you know, for the reasons I've just sketched, they know that their constituents are hurting, that they've been there for 12 years and will get a lot of the blame uh, for that when the general election comes. And they are sort of, you know, facing down that electoral reality and are, are very anxious about it. So that, you know, that's the sort of brute electoral reality of it all. Conservatives know that they're in trouble and they are worried about what the future is going to bring for them, for their own seats, uh, for the party, you know, and for their sort of governing mission. At the same time, they are sort of flowering around looking for big answers to it. And that's, I think, why we've seen these these swings and this change. You know, they thought Johnsonism might be an answer. Then they thought trust might be an answer. And now they're back to a kind of Treasury orthodoxy with Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, and they're hoping that that might be an answer. Relatively few of them are probably persuaded that these answers will work for them in electoral terms. You know, they they think that their time is running out, um, and that's what's making them so fractious and so unpredictable. I reckon the Conservative Party is going to look back on the Liz Truss era as a brief aberration that it doesn't really want to think or talk about. But what should it really learn from her tenure? I mean, I think that the Liz Trust period really was a kind of rage at the world, if you like. You know, it's like everything, well, not everything that's too strong, but lots of things are going wrong. And lots of people feel sort of frustrated and angry about that. For those people who are true Brexit believers, things were meant to be getting better now, and they're not getting better now, they're getting worse. For those people who aren't true Brexit believers, but have sort of made their peace with it, you know, the sort of Jeremy Hunt and Liz Trusses of the world, we needed to find something to turn things around. And so I think the whole summer really was Conservative Party members screaming that things ought to be better than this and looking for a solution. And, you know, that's why Liz Truss won the leadership election is that she promised something that wasn't orthodox, that wasn't mainstream, that was going to be new, and that they all got a bit excited about. You know, we all remember those headlines after the mini-budget, the Quasar-Quateng mini-budget, which was, you know, at last a true Tory budget, the papers told us. And there was a sense of excitement, I think, among some Conservative quarters, that they found a big, new, bold solution. Trouble was, you know, the wheels fell off that straight away. You know, it wasn't a big, bold solution. It was a disaster. And the markets turned on them, their normal allies turned on them, and then the public turned on them. And they've sort of, you know, abandoned ship and tried to find something else um, which is going to get them to safe harbour. Anger, rage, unpredictability. You see that wherever you look uh, in Britain at the moment, but you see it in the Conservative Party and the Conservative backbenchers, perhaps most of all. Did you have an inkling when you taught Liz Truss at Oxford that she might one day rise to the top of the party? <laughs> um, look, I, you never think your students are going to end up being prime minister, you know, because very, very few people do. Um, but I think the thing actually I did know about Liz Truss from a very early age was that she saw herself as someone who would poke the belly of the beast, you know, get people riled up. Uh, she loved always sort of challenging orthodoxy and conventional wisdom. That's just the person that she was. And as a young student, those were quite endearing qualities. Uh, as a prime minister, a, a bit less so. So you quite enjoy teaching her? I really enjoyed teaching her. Yeah, she was... Um, someone who always came along with something to say. And lots of students, you know, 19-year-olds, uh, a little bit overawed by Oxford, you know, going to their lectures and reading their textbooks. Some, sometimes they can be fairly predictable, if I'm honest. But uh, with Liz, it was never predictable. So you've just got back to London after spending four years in Australia. And of course, that time included the pandemic. What did you learn there? 
I mean, the biggest thing I think you learn when you leave uh, the UK at the moment for a, you know another developed democracy is just how much money there is elsewhere. Um, I mean, the overwhelming sense in Australian politics is, you know, obviously there are inflationary pressures and there are anxieties about cost of living. But overall, it's a country which feels very confident about its future, which has a sort of economic plan that makes sense to people and means that you know most people still believe that the future will be better than the past. And uh, if I'm brutally honest, it's not like that very much around here, um, back in England. So that's the biggest difference. So I think when you go overseas, you just see prosperity and you see confidence about the future and you see a politics which is you know, more calm as a result. What does the UK look like to you at the moment as someone with a global perspective, apart from, as you say, feeling negative about the future? What, what are we not understanding and acknowledging about ourselves, perhaps because we're so caught up in the constant, non-stop, psychodrama of the Tory party? Yeah, I think that the two things, is one, one sort of good thing we overlook, I think, is that there is remarkable strength still in Britain. And Rachel Reeve said this in responding to Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, you know, that there are remarkable strengths in, in the country, economically, socially, culturally, given how gloomy everything has been, people do take their eyes off the potential. And, you know, so I do think some of the sense that the future is going to be much worse than the past is overly negative and you know sort of overlooks the resources that the country has to create a better a better prospect for us all. I also think that people probably are not quite as aware as they perhaps ought to be about just how much poorer we have become. We all seen that graph now that just shows that the you know the Britain of those G7 countries is the one that's not back to its pre-pandemic size of you know in terms of the economy. But more importantly than that, you know sort of People, average incomes are just so much lower here than they are in other democracies. We're being overtaken by very many middle-ranking countries. And those people who are at the bottom end of the income spectrum are significantly worse off than they are elsewhere. I mean, my friend Torsten Bell was telling me that in France, um, people are 25% richer in that bottom part of the labour market than they are here. And that's a huge difference. I think we're probably over gloomy about where where we might be able to get Uh, but we're probably not gloomy enough about where we are right now. What resources do you think we have? Because when when you talk to people about Britain's strengths, they often say, for example, universities. And of course, you, you know about that. What other strengths do we have that perhaps we're not making the most of at the moment? At least two. I mean, I think part, partly there are just certain things that Britain remains really good at, and we ought to be more proud of that. And again, Torsten Bell always says that's true of the service sector, you know, not just financial services, which we talk about all the time, you know, banking and the like, but, you know, creative industries, for example, r- remain world beating. And there's just extraordinary opportunities for Britons to have extremely successful careers in parts of the economy that other countries aren't so great at. And creativity is an enormous strength of Britain, and we haven't talked about it enough, and we haven't celebrated it enough, and we should do. So I think that's that's really important. I mean, the other part, though, is obviously we've relied upon London for far too long to be the only source of energy and economic success. And that means there's enormous untapped potential in other parts of the country, you know, both in the big cities, you know, the Manchester's and Leeds, 
uh, of the country, but also in you know small towns and villages. There are people who have incredible talent, incredible ambition, uh, and who you know, we haven't been sort of channeling into economic success over the last decade or so. And I'm really excited as a policymaker about what might be able to release those talents and turn it into prosperity, you know, and prosperity which is widely shared across the whole country. How can politicians help people get through difficult times like this? What do we know about what works? We think a lot about World War Two, and we think a lot about inspirational speeches by Churchill, but we're not at war, apart, you know, there's Ukraine, but we're not at war. What can politicians do to try to unify the country at a time like this? Uh, I think the key thing is that you've got to be able to give people a sense of where the future is going to come from. You know, what you, you want to show people that there are better years ahead of us. But you also want to give people a realistic sense that that's not just the usual sort of puff or rhetoric or boosterism that folks have got used to. So, I mean, in in his conference speech this year, Keir Starmer had this phrase, which I thought was really helpful. He called it ordinary hope. So he said it's it's hope. You know, it's a sense that the future will be better and that we're not going to live through this forever. But it's ordinary in the sense that it's actually grounded in realistic aspirations that people can believe in because they can see them in their own lives. And that, to me, is what great political leadership will be about right now, showing people that we can get out of this mess, but not giving people fantasies or exaggerated ideas, you know, or false promises like Brexit was, but giving them sort of a real sense of a concrete plan grounded in things that they can see in the world around them. And in fact, your last book was called Out of the Ordinary wasn't it? That's right. And you wrote about how a number of writers and artists helped to create a sense of what it was to be British that resonated with the public. Tell us about a few of these people. In the book, I talked about really, as you say, kind of cultural figures, you know, artists, writers, poets, photographers, and the way in which they drew on everyday resources to give people a sense that they could get over the challenges of the depression and the war. So to give a really practical example, I mean, the first year of the Second World War was extraordinarily bleak in Britain. I mean, people didn't have that rallying around and feeling optimistic and bombastic as they had done in the First World War. You know, they knew what war was like and they were understandably terrified. And what people like J.B. Priestley, the writer, did, or Dylan Thomas, the poet, or Bill Brandt, the photographer, or Barbara Jones, the artist, is they went into ordinary communities, everyday communities, and they found these sources of inspirational hope, creativity, drive, and they told those stories. J.B. Priestley had a radio show called Postscripts in 1940, where he just does these extraordinary little stories to camera about the people of the country and what they're capable of and how that's the only way that would get through the Second World War. You know, wasn't going to be the extraordinary inventions or the military might or the, you know, sort of rural Britannia stuff. It was going to be um, the struggles and capacities of ordinary people. What's incredible about those stories, I think, is that they still resonate all these years later. People still have a feeling, I think, that the Second World War was the people's war. What got us through it were real communities doing remarkable things. It's interesting because many people associate the post-war British revival with beverage and the welfare state. But your perspective is a completely different one. Yeah, I think the good thing about you know, what Beveridge did was that he built on things which had already been were already being built, and that's the crucial thing that I think we need to remember. It was 
trade unions and cooperatives and what used to be called friendly societies and community endeavours and local health initiatives, which Beveridge saw and turned into a national story, which became the welfare state. You know, he didn't create it all magically from Whitehall or from Westminster. He built on these extraordinary endeavours of, you know, ordinary everyday people. And he was quite open and honest about that, as were all the all the people around him and Clement Attlee as the Labour Prime Minister in 1945. But I think over the years, you know, some of us have forgotten that. And we look, therefore, for rather too quick solutions to come from our elected politicians or from elite civil servants, when hope, I think, you know, really doesn't start there. It starts in people's everyday lives and the things that they're able to do for themselves and the changes that they're able to demand through the organisations they create. Well, I mean, speaking of that, I think people are impatient for solutions from Keir Starmer, for example, and they they want to hear more and they want to hear what Labour's alternative is. And they're not hearing that yet, they feel, apart from talk about green jobs. Does Keir Starmer need to step it up now? I mean, he's been, you know, he's done a remarkable job of making the party electable when, frankly, it didn't feel electable <laughs> only only two or three years ago to many people. Yeah, look, look, the spotlight's definitely going to turn on to Labour and on to Keir Starmer now because, you know, people have seen what they've seen over the last few weeks from the Conservatives. They've seen the opinion polls leads that Labour have now got. And so attention is going to switch on to Labour soon enough and people are going to ask, you know, what what is the plan what kind of leadership does Starmer offer? Are they going to be able to be more hopeful about the future if they imagine a Labour government? So that is definitely going to happen. And I'm sure that people in Labour are aware of that and are sort of readying themselves for it. But I also think that we are going to enter another phase in our politics now. And that's, I guess, what I've been trying to argue over the last few weeks and months is that people are fed up with sort of overly grandiose sort of untruths. They were told a story that Brexit, you know, big boom idea, Brexit was going to sort everything out. You know, then there were, you know, endless, as you've mentioned, endless bits of boosterism about Boris, you know, sort of bridges to nowhere. And then, you know, they had the sort of, you know, the dash for growth that was going to come from Liz Truss. You know, these are these are big, grandiose stories which turned out to have nothing in them. And I think what they're not looking for from Starmer is a, a rival big grandiose theory, you know, like they, they've had it with that kind of politics. What they want is something which is more believable and which is more grounded in the world that they see around them. And and those are the elements that I'm kind of already seeing from the Starmer team. And I'm looking forward to finding out and hearing more, you know, sort of real concrete solutions built on the actual possibilities of the country rather than on fantasies which turn out to have, you know, sort of nothing in them. You've got a book out next year, another one, England, Who's England? Why just England? Yes. (laughs) The idea of that book, was so I'm writing that with my um, friend and colleague, Tom Baldwin. Tom kind of came out of that process saying, okay, okay, like we've we've lost the Brexit, um, you know, we lost the referendum, we've lost the opportunity for a second referendum. So, like, what what is actually confronting the country right now? And one of the things that we saw is that okay, well, part of the answer to that is that England becomes more uh, central. Scotland has obviously got the you know the excitements that it has of its devolution of the SNP. It has a story about its future, whether that's in the union or not in the union. Uh, people in Scotland, I think, you know, have a have a sense of what their future might look like. Clearly, you know, the situation in Northern Ireland and in Ireland has its own dynamics too. 
And in Wales, they have also now a devolved assembly. Uh, and during COVID, they took their own path. And Mark Drakeford, I think, has done uh, a really good job in Wales in giving people a sense of what Welsh identity might be like. England doesn't have its own parliament. Uh, it doesn't have its own sort of national story about the future. And so Tom and I set out to find out what that might look like. And those of us who live in England and might be proud of some parts of its history and less proud of other parts of its history need to know what England might mean in the years ahead. And that's what the, the book is all about. Looking forward to hopefully talking to you about that next year. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Times are hard, but if you can spare £3 a month to support The Bunker, we'd be enormously grateful. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.